0: Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout the month of March, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Many physicians today feel overburdened by the task of pain management. The current state of pain management stands in sharp contrast to years past, when our options were once relatively limited in the treatment of pain associated with headaches and other ailments. When is it appropriate to prescribe narcotics, if at all, for these conditions? You are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Neurology. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Joel Saper, Director of the Michigan Head Pain and Neurological Institute in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Saper. Thank you. Dr. Saper, we spoke earlier about the overuse of opioids in patients with headaches. Are there any situations where we can say that the use of opioids is absolutely appropriate?
1: Yes, of course. In the chronic case of people who are going to have these pain syndromes like headache year after year after year, we think that it is a undesirable thing to use opioids because, as we've talked It can actually cause a progression of the primary problem and make the entire case more complicated from many different directions. But in acute pain, such as postoperative pain, acute burns, trauma, and the many other areas of acute pain care, opiates have a very important place. There is no better substitute for opioids in the treatment of acute pain. Our problem is not so much its use in the acute care setting, but where the continued application of opioids goes well beyond the period of healing and becomes another problem. And as I've mentioned before, there is growing evidence that the chronic use of opioids actually changes the brain so the brain is more vulnerable to pain as one goes
0: forward. Now, years ago, physicians and especially surgeons were criticized because they said that we were insensitive to patients' pain, and that's why they came with the scales of 1 to 10, and patients described their pain in that way. Do you think that patients will now interpret our using opioids more discriminately being insensitive to pain?
1: Well, I don't think so. I think the doctors have been in some way given a mixed message, and I think that's what you're alluding to in in part. Uh, Certainly, we undervalued pain for many, many years. And if we couldn't find some illness, then we didn't respect the presence of pain. But we know the brain can hurt and cause pain even in the absence of an identifiable cause migraine, for example. You don't have any tests that are abnormal in migraine, but we, no one doubts that there's a severe pain associated with it, and there's many other examples. So we've sensitized our doctors to be more sensitive to their patient's pain. On the same token, as we've liberalized our use of pain control medicine, and of course, it's much more than just opioids, we have hundreds of medicines available for the chronic and acute treatment of pain. But as we've done that, We've seen almost an indiscriminate overprescribing of opioids in situations where many of my doctor colleagues, both in primary care and in neurology, say, you know, 10 years ago, I never would have done this. I'd have been afraid I'd lose my license if I wrote these many prescriptions. And what that has done, that liberalization, if you will, has actually created another separate public health problem because of the diversion, the deaths that have occurred, the automobile accidents and the many other compromises that have come from this over-exaggerated use of pain treatment. So we've gone from too limited prescribing of any kind of medicine for pain to, at least in the case of opiates, over-prescribing. But at the same time, we've also had the maturation of pain control systems of care so that a primary care doctor, for example, Mark, has the ability to refer a patient to a pain specialist, or to a center that is devoted to the comprehensive treatment of pain. And so we've had the maturation of pain care systems at the same time that we've given the message that it's better to treat pain aggressively than uh, minimally.
0: Now, Dr. Saper, I'm sure that many of the primary care physicians are wondering, as I am, what are the medications that are considered the most dangerous opioids that we prescribe every day?
1: Well, the most commonly used drug in the United States is Vicodin which is uh, hydrocodone. And then you get into the many other similar opioids like oxycodone, which is Percocet and Percodan, and OxyContin is oxycodone. And then, of course, one gets up to durogesic and fentanyl and morphine. And surprisingly, at least in the referrals to our center, these drugs are being given to young people with, I had a young lady one time, Mark, that started out having nothing more than menstrual migraine. And instead of being creative with the drugs we can use to prevent headaches around the menstrual period or treat them across the menstrual period with standard anti-migraine drugs used creatively, perhaps, her doctor chose to just put her on a fentanyl patch. And she used it for three or four days, And then pretty soon she was using it for six or eight days, and pretty soon she was on a fentanyl patch all the time. And then it went from fentanyl to other drugs, Dilaudid, and on and on and on and on. And so there is a problem. These drugs do cause dependency. They do bring euphoria, and they're terrific tranquilizers. And so many times our doctors who have well-intended goals to control an acute pain problem or another problem find themselves caught in a trap where the patient is wanting more and more drugs. They're going to the emergency departments. They're getting drugs from different doctors. They're on the Internet because they become dependent and their pain is escalating.
0: Being the devil's advocate, if we restrict the opioids, what happens then if patients take massive amounts of, let's say, aspirin or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, get gastritis, get bleeding diathesis? I mean, what's going to happen in that situation? Well,
1: of course, but we're not limited to just aspirin or non-steroidals. I mean, you know, Mark, we have hundreds of drugs right now that many of our colleagues are not even aware of that we can use. And so there are many ways to treat pain beyond just aspirin and Tylenol and other painkillers. And we have to use and employ these different methods. There's behavioral therapies that can help many people. We have patches, patches with lidocaine in it, for example. There's many different ways to treat pain. Now, if you're not experienced or trained in the treatment of pain beyond, you know, what every doctor gets in their basic training, then, of course, you're not going to have advanced knowledge in how to use those drugs or what drugs to use any more than I, as a neurologist, know much about what you do in an operating room and the techniques you use in modern day surgery. So I think that one has to recognize that pain treatment today is a specialty. There's board certification for pain and there's board certification for headache in addition to neurology boards and anesthesia boards. So we have advanced techniques in the various specialties that treat pain and we have to learn to use them much like we use surgery and other specialties in the treatment of complex cases.
0: If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Joel Saper, director of the Michigan Head Pain and Neurological Institute in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're discussing discriminant use of narcotics for pain syndromes. Dr. Saper... Could you have a patient who has a headache as part of a general pain syndrome, and would you treat that differently?
1: Well, we have a lot of people who come to us, Mark, who are taking opioids for their back pain, for example, but then also have daily migraine. And many times it was the use of opioids for their back pain that actually aggravated and made worse the what might have been a more benign headache problem before that, In fact, there's been some research studies that have shown that a person who's got the genes for migraine, even though they've not had many headaches, if they get put on opioids for some other reason, for any other reason, for an extended period of time, it will actually bring their headache tendency out of the woods, so to speak. So we frequently have people who have what they call fibromyalgia, which many of them do not have, or have back problems or many other medical problems for which they're taking opioids. We tell them that it's not easy to treat the headache in the presence of those opiates for some other medical problem. And so what we do is we begin to address those other problems, not simply by covering up the pain, but by going at the mechanism whether that's disc disease or some other problem somewhere else in the body, and treat it a bit more directly than simply by camouflage, which is what the painkillers do.
0: Do you differentiate the use of opioids, albeit limited, in headache patients, whether they have, let's say, a tension headache or a migraine headache?
1: We don't have the time to get into the differences there, but most of us believe that migraine and tension-type headache are really part of the same pathophysiological basis, although they are still classified differently.
0: Explain that, sir.
1: Sure. We know much about migraine, and we know much about tension headache. And many people with migraine will have many headaches that fit the category of tension headache, and there are very few people with so-called tension headache who don't periodically have a migraine. And many of us, but not all of us, So it is quite controversial. Many of us believe, and I'm one, that actually they're part of the same spectrum and the same pathophysiology, but different expression. And just like a virus can give you a sore throat and another virus can give you a chest cold, you know, there are different expressions for sometimes the same pathology. And we think that people are along a spectrum Of clinical manifestations. And many people are on one end with something more like a benign headache, a tightness, a gripping headache that we call tension headache, and then other people have a more expansive expression, which we call migraine, but that the same fundamental brain disturbances are in play.
0: In other words, if you had a patient, let's say, that had in traditional terminology a classic tension headache and you gave them migraine medications that are commonly used, would it work?
1: Yeah, oftentimes it does. That's been shown and published and published in the literature. It doesn't always work. Sometimes there's a different set of mechanisms you've got to go after with some medicines. But it's interesting. For example, a lot of the beliefs about headache mechanisms, Mark, came from a misinterpretation based upon what drugs work. For example, for years, because drugs that constricted arteries helped migraine, there was the assumption that migraine was caused by dilated arteries. Many people still think that. But we have many drugs that turn off a migraine that don't even have any effects on the blood vessels. And we now know that constricting is not a requirement for acute migraine reversal. Many of the drugs have that effect, but that's a secondary effect. It's not a primary effect. We now know that inflammatory mechanisms in the brain and throughout the body are responsible for many of the excitatory events that produce pain. So our approaches are different than the traditional approaches of the past, and we can cover a lot of ground with some of the new drugs.
0: Now, talking about drugs, you know that most insurance companies have drug plans. In other words, that they won't necessarily allow you to take certain medications until you've tried others. Let's say you've got a patient who comes to you, first off, with a headache, and you want to use a medication, let's say, that is more expensive or a little bit more complex than your standard non-steroidal or uh, narcotic. Will some of the insurance companies balk at this?
1: Well, insurance companies block it everything these days. I think you all we all know that, and I'm sure every doctor listening on the radio knows that. Yes, we have to carve out our niche and go to bat for patients to get their drugs, and there are very few patients that come to us that we can't, through one way or another, prescribe a particular drug that they need. I noticed something in the news about the government wanting to do comparative studies on, on the value of different treatments, and what's troubling about that, and I think every doctor knows this, is that patients with the same condition don't always respond to the same treatment, and that sometimes you have outliers who respond to unusual treatments for a particularly common condition, but don't respond to the more typical treatment for that condition, and we need to have available to us a broad array of treatment modalities if we're going to treat using the available tools of today and treat to the maximum benefit of our patients.
0: So if Mr. John Doe shows up in a primary care physician's office, first time being seen and he describes a chronic headache, should that primary care physician necessarily refer that patient to a pain specialist or a neurologist? Or do you think it's incumbent upon that primary care physician to try to deal with that himself?
1: Oh, absolutely. He or she should deal with that patient. A primary care doctor is well-versed in the treatment of headache these days and has attended courses or read articles or heard lectures or seen a video and we're proud of the fact that I and many of my colleagues have aggressively communicated and and given courses and lectures to our primary care doctor friends. And so they have a lot of tools available to them, but if they've exhausted the tools that they have, the standard treatments, I think before they put people on narcotics, which is a one-way street frequently. Sometimes you can't get people off without putting them through terrible, terrible discomfort, and often people are unwilling to do that. Before that primary doctor goes down that road, I would strongly advise that doctor to refer that patient to a specialty program for that illness and let them do what they can do. And if they can take that patient to a better place in terms of pain control in a more modest way, then they should try to do so much before one considers long-term opioid therapy.
0: I want to thank our guest, Dr. Joel Saper. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. You've been listening to this month's special series Focus on neurology and psychiatry. For a program guide, complete list of shows and podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com.